Welcome to Linda's Corner. My name is Linda Bjork. Today, I want to talk about the Abrahamic Covenant and the gathering of Israel and explain it in simple terms so that we can understand not only what it means in general, but what it means to you personally. Hopefully, when we're done today, you'll be able to say, oh, is it really that simple? I knew that already, and I can absolutely do that. This episode is intended particularly for members of my faith, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But anyone is welcome to listen. To start off, I want to hold off talking about Abraham for now and just explain what a covenant is. A covenant is a binding agreement. To bind is to tie or fasten together. In other words, a covenant is a promise or agreement that ties or connects two different parties together. Making a covenant is all about forming a new relationship, and the nature of that relationship is based on the terms of the agreement. The best way that I can think of to explain this is by using the analogy of a marriage. In a marriage, two separate people make a promise that legally binds them together. This promise or covenant forms a new relationship. Because I made a covenant with my husband, Louis, I have a special and unique relationship with him. It is different from the relationships that I have with other people. Lewis is now set apart from every other person on earth to me. Not because either one of us is perfect or better than anybody else, but because we are bound together by a sacred promise. Likewise, when we make sacred covenants with God, it sets us apart from everyone else in the world to Him. Not because we are perfect or better than anybody else, but because we are bound to him by a sacred promise. We become his people, and he becomes our God. He explains this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, where it says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Now, we don't use the word peculiar very often nowadays, and when we do, we typically use that word to mean kind of odd or weird, which could make the scripture a little bit confusing. But the word peculiar, as used in the Old Testament, comes from a Hebrew word, which means valued or treasured. So, to be identified as God's peculiar treasure above all people shows a special relationship, which sets covenant people apart from just anybody else. So this might bring up a question. Doesn't God love everybody the same? Yes, of course God loves everybody. We are all his children. But when we make a covenant with him, it creates a special relationship with additional advantages and obligations. Let's go back to the marriage analogy. My husband, Louis, loves his parents and his siblings and his co-workers, his neighbors and his friends. He's a loving person. But the advantages and obligations in a marriage relationship are different. He protects and provides for me and our children. 
He's not expected to pay for his co-workers' mortgages and their bills and their groceries and their kids' education. Our relationship is different from the relationship with his co-workers, and the expectations and obligations are different. We understand that so naturally that we don't even think about it. So, what are the advantages of having a covenant relationship with God? In order to understand that, we need to give a brief history of the creation and the fall. God created the heavens and the earth. He also created Adam and Eve, who lived in the Garden of Eden. There was one tree in the garden that they were commanded not to touch. Whether this tree is literal or figurative doesn't really matter, but they were told that if they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then everything would change, and they would eventually die. Satan tempted them, and they partook of the fruit. Because they disobeyed this commandment, everything changed, just as God had said that it would. The biggest change was that Adam and Eve could no longer walk and talk with God. They were shut out from his presence. This is a really big deal. Probably bigger than we can imagine, because we can't remember what it was like to be in God's presence. If we think about the changes that took place on the earth, it can give us an idea of the difference. The earth itself changed. It was once a place where it naturally only produced good things. But after the fall, it also brought weeds and thorns. Plants could wither and die. People could wither and die. Perhaps these are things that naturally occur when we're separated from God's presence. And what does it do to people? What are they like when they are without God? Adam quickly learned what it could be like when one of his sons, Cain, killed another one of his sons, Abel. Being separated from the presence of God is miserable. But this separation was not without hope of a reconciliation. In Moses chapter 4, verse 9, it says, As thou hast fallen thou mayest be redeemed, and all mankind, even as many as will. Adam was taught by an angel that a Savior would come, and that through him we could be forgiven and return to God's presence. His great sacrifice is called the Atonement, which literally means at one meant. It is the only thing that can unify us again with our Heavenly Father so that we can dwell in His presence. Do you remember that I said a covenant is a promise that forms a new relationship? The relationship that we're trying to achieve is reconciliation with our Heavenly Father so that we can again dwell in His presence. And the only way to do that is to create a binding relationship with the Son so that we might regain the presence of the Father. Jesus Christ is the mediator. The promise that Adam was given that as thou hast fallen, thou mayest be redeemed through the Savior Jesus Christ is the covenant. It is the covenant. The covenant is all about reconciling our relationship with the Father by creating a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every other covenant and promise that we make are parts of this great covenant. Now, we've talked about how there are advantages and obligations in relationships. 
In 2 Nephi chapter 9, Jacob tries to explain some of the advantages of this covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, and he also explains how to enter this covenant relationship. We understand some of the consequences of the fall because we are living in a fallen world, but there are consequences that go beyond this lifetime. Jacob explains that the fall brought physical death, but since our spirits are eternal, they can't die. And this creates a problem, because if we're forever banned from the presence of our eternal God, that means that by default, we would become forever subject to Satan, and we would be miserable forever. This is a really bad situation. Then Jacob gives us hope by saying, Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster, yea, that monster death and hell, which I call death of the body and also the death of the spirit. And because of the way of deliverance of our God, the Holy One of Israel, this death of which I have spoken, which is temporal, shall deliver up its dead, which death is the grave. And this death of which I have spoken, which is the spiritual death, shall deliver up its dead, which spiritual death is hell. Wherefore, death and hell must deliver up their dead, and hell must deliver up its captive spirits, and the grave must deliver up its captive bodies, and the bodies and the spirits of men will be restored one to another. And it is by the power of the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel." So, the advantage of having this covenant relationship with God is that we don't need to fear death or hell. We will be delivered or saved from this awful situation. There's a reason that Jesus Christ is called our Savior. He literally saves us from death and hell. So, the advantages of having a covenant relationship with God are huge. In that same chapter, Jacob explains that if we don't enter this covenant relationship with God, then we are damned. This covenant relationship is absolutely crucial. In another part of this same chapter, Jacob explains how to enter into this covenant relationship. He says, And he commanded all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. The fourth article of faith says it in this way. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. The fourth article of faith says the same thing that Jacob taught in the Book of Mormon, but it adds some clarifying information that is really important. There are principles and there are ordinances. A principle is a fundamental truth. It is a rule or belief governing one's personal behavior. The word ordinance means a couple of different things. First of all, it is a law, like a city ordinance is a law that we have to follow. Ordinance also means a prescribed religious rite, which is like a ritual or ceremony. Baptism is an ordinance. It is a ceremonial ritual that is required by God's laws and must be performed with authority from God. This is super important for a couple of reasons. Many people say, 
I don't need organized religion in order to have a relationship with God. And that's true, to a point. But in order to have this covenant relationship with God that I've been talking about, you have to follow God's laws and have God's authority, or else it is not binding. Going back to that analogy of a marriage, you can date and have a relationship with someone, but you don't have that legally binding relationship of marriage without having a ceremony performed by someone with the legal authority. And you don't have the same legal rights that a marriage offers. This is the point where I'm almost ready to talk about Abraham. But first, I have to go back to Adam again. Adam was taught about the ordinance of baptism. He was baptized and given the authority from God to baptize others. This record is found in Moses chapter 6. This authority from God to perform ordinances is called the priesthood. You have to have access to priesthood authority from God in order to enter that covenant relationship with God through baptism. The word priesthood also refers to the organization, leadership, or government according to God's laws. This is important because according to God's laws, the family is the basis for organization, leadership, and government. In the Garden of Eden, God did not create a ward with a bishop, an elders quorum president, and a Relief Society president. He created a family consisting of a husband and wife. The husband, who later also became a father, had the priesthood authority to administer the ordinances of the gospel. Those ordinances included baptism and also sacrifices, which were done as a similitude that Jesus would offer the ultimate sacrifice. He was also given the authority to ordain his sons so that they might have that priesthood authority to do the same for their children. This plan of organization is perfect. Everyone is born on this earth to a mother and a father. Through this plan of organization, every person should have access to the required priesthood ordinances that create that covenant relationship with God that saves us. The organization is perfect except for one weakness, and that is that people are not perfect and they can break the chain. If a man is wicked and unworthy, then he can't administer those ordinances to his children, and they can't administer those ordinances to their children. This is the problem that Abraham faced. His dad was an absolute jerk who offered his son as a sacrifice to heathen idols. He did not have the priesthood, and he wouldn't have wanted it anyway. He wasn't interested in having a relationship with God. But Abraham was. In fact, that was his greatest desire. Abraham's desire to receive priesthood ordinances and to be able to administer those ordinances to others changed everything. God agreed with Abraham to a compromise of sorts. This was a way to reconcile God's laws with the reality of a fallen world. Remember that organization according to God's law is through the family, but not everyone is born into a good family. So this new plan would allow for some changes. First of all, a man named Melchizedek, who had the priesthood, 
was allowed to give the priesthood to Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't his son. According to the scriptures, that was the first time that that had ever happened, so that was a really big deal. Then, from this point on, anyone who wanted to receive the priesthood, even if they couldn't obtain it from a righteous father, could be adopted into Abraham's family and receive it as an heir of Abraham. That way, it still follows God's organization of receiving authority through a family, but it also allows anyone from anywhere to participate. It was a really big deal. The Abrahamic covenant is the same covenant which was given to Adam. It also has another name, which is the new and everlasting covenant. It is everlasting because it's the same covenant that God gave to Adam and Abraham and everybody else through the scriptures, but it's also new in that it is given anew in each dispensation. Remember that Adam was promised that as thou hast fallen, thou mayest be redeemed through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can't just blame Adam for the need to be redeemed because each one of us has fallen. Each one of us needs the benefits of that covenant relationship in order to return to our Heavenly Father's presence. The Abrahamic covenant includes a few other things, so let's go over the basic promises. The first is that covenant relationship with God. The way it's often referred to in the scriptures is that I will be thy God and you will be my people. Whenever you hear that phrase, it's referring to the special relationship with God that comes through covenant. The Abrahamic covenant also talks about having posterity and innumerable seed. That promise is not only fulfilled through Abraham's bloodline, but also every person who chooses to be baptized and receives priesthood ordinances is automatically adopted into Abraham's family. Abraham is also promised that through his seed, all the world would be blessed. This promise is twofold. First is that Abraham was promised that the Savior would come through his bloodline. And through the Savior, all the world is blessed. It is also a promise and an obligation that his descendants have a responsibility to share the gospel and help others enter into a relationship with the Lord. We call that the gathering of Israel. It is inviting anyone in the world, whether or not they are literal descendants of Abraham, to become part of his family through receiving the ordinances of the gospel. There is also a promise of lands of inheritance in the Abrahamic covenant. That promise is fulfilled in a couple of different ways. One is that promised land in Israel, and the other is the celestial kingdom. So even those who didn't get a chance to inherit the promised land on earth can receive it eventually. Now, with any relationship, there are obligations as well as advantages or blessings. And the covenant relationship of the Abrahamic covenant is no different. So let's talk about some of the obligations of the Abrahamic covenant. First of all, once you've made that covenant, you have left neutral ground and your actions have greater consequences. To go back to that marriage analogy, before I got married, I dated lots of different people and that was fine. In fact, it was a good thing. But after I got married, I had to make some changes. It's no longer okay to date other people. That would be being unfaithful. 
When we make a covenant that says God is our God and we are his people, we need to be faithful. And the consequences are greater when we don't keep the commandments. The promises that are offered in the covenant are not just a given. They come on condition of us keeping our end of the bargain. In fact, there's a consequence that is the opposite of a blessing. You might call it a cursing when we are not faithful. Let's look at history for an example. One of the blessings of the covenant is a land of promise. When Christ came to the earth, he was rejected by the Jews. In consequence, rather than having a land of promise, they got the opposite of a land of promise. The Jews didn't have any land to call their own for many, many generations. It's not enough just to make covenants. We have to keep them. To go back to that analogy of marriage, if, on my wedding day, we went through the ceremony and did all the traditional things of getting a dress and a cake and flowers and having a reception and all that, and then, at the end of the day, we shook hands and said, thanks, that was fun, and then he went back home to his parents and I went back to mine, and we continued on just as we had before we were married, that wouldn't be a very good marriage. We wouldn't have kept those promises that we made. It isn't enough to make a covenant. We have to actually do what we said we'd do. We call that keeping our covenants. Our number one obligation in keeping this covenant relationship with God is to love Him. And to go back to the marriage analogy, that is very much the same as the promises we make when we married. We choose to enter this relationship because we love each other. And we promise to continue to love each other. And we show that love through our words and our daily actions. This is how we keep our relationship healthy. It's interesting to me that Jesus taught that the way we show our love for God is to obey his commandments. But then he also taught that the greatest commandment is to love God. So it creates a sort of a cycle. In Matthew chapter 22, it says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that leads to our next obligation in the Abrahamic covenant. We are to love our neighbor. And the way God wants us to show that love is to bring others to Christ. We spend a great deal of time, resources, and energy helping people on both sides of the veil come to Christ. This is done through missionary work and also through temple work. One of the most important aspects of referring to the Abrahamic covenant is that it is communal. It's about a community. It's not just about individual salvation. It's about saving the whole human family. So, to summarize, the Abrahamic covenant is about creating a relationship with God by making and keeping sacred covenants. It is the good news of the gospel that we can be saved through the atonement of Jesus Christ. 
What are my obligations as part of this Abrahamic covenant? First of all, it's to love God and keep his commandments. Second, it's to love our neighbor, specifically through sharing the opportunity for others on both sides of the veil to create their own relationship with God through making and keeping sacred covenants. In other words, we are gathering Israel by inviting others to come to Christ. In closing, I'd like to share a quote by President Russell M. Nelson. He said, Any time you do anything that helps anyone on either side of the veil, take a step toward making covenants with God and receiving their essential baptismal and temple ordinances, you are helping to gather Israel. See you next time on Linda's Corner.